0: Let me pray as you mm. just get ready. Father, thank you for this morning. I pray that your blessing and anointing will rest upon Mike. Yeah. And as we open our, deliberately open our hearts to hear him, Lord, we pray that seeds will be planted that will germinate and be a real help and blessing in our walk. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm. Okay, we've got sound? Good morning, people loved by God. I think you're okay too, if that makes any difference. Are you ready? Let's get underway. I love science, and I love God's Word, the Bible. And I love it when scientific discovery supports the Bible, which happens a lot more often than you might think. I find it fascinating how science keeps catching up with God's Word and confirming what He's said all along. We see this in every scientific discipline. With each new discovery, it's almost as if God's saying, well done, you got there. You would have got there a bit quicker if you looked at my word for some guidance, but you got there. In one sense, though, it's, it's really quite sad how much time and effort is wasted in the scientific community where people choose to take an, an anti-God stance. Now, this exclusion of God is not um, based in science itself. It comes from philosophical positions from outside of science. And the theory of evolution is, is the greatest example of this. This redefining of science to exclude anything biblical, it's recognised, it's even admitted by secular scientists. Professor Richard Lewontin is a geneticist, he's one of the world's leaders in evolutionary thinking, and he wrote a very revealing comment a few years ago that illustrates this philosophical bias against the Bible, regardless of whether the facts support it or not. Apologies in advance, this is um, quite a long quote, and it has a bit of complex language, um, but I'm sure you'll get the gist of it. And when he talks about science, he's talking about secular science that excludes God. So Professor Richard Lewontin says, Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated, just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Hold well on, you survived that one. He's basically admitting that we've introduced a set of man-made rules into science that say we must exclude anything supernatural, which is very interesting when we look at the history of science and we find that virtually every branch of modern science was either founded or co-founded or dramatically advanced by scientists who are Bible-believing Christians. So what I want to look at today is some of the the bad fruit or the, the harmful consequences of evolutionary thinking and also at how thinking biblically counters bad fruit. It's much more likely to lead us to the truth. Now, one way to measure the merit of an idea is to look at its fruit. You may not realise it, but evolutionary theory actually provides no real benefit to scientific progress. Instead, it's an impediment to useful research that leads people down blind alleys. You may hear very... Bold statements like this one from Theodosius Dobzhansky, a 20th century evolutionist who said, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. But I think he would struggle if he had to justify that statement, and certainly not all scientists agree with him. A.S. Wilkins, he's the editor of the journal Bio Essays, commenting on Dobzhansky's quote, He wrote, evolution would appear to be the indispensable unifying idea and, at the same time, a highly superfluous one. Dr Mark Kirshner, founding chair of the Department of Systems Biology at Harvard Medical School, states, in fact, over the last 100 years, almost all of biology has proceeded independent of evolution, except evolutionary biology itself. Biochemistry, physiology, uh, molecular biology have not taken evolution into account at all. The anti-creationist Larry Witham wrote, surprisingly however the most notable aspect of natural scientists in assembly is how little they focus on evolution. Its day to day irrelevance is a great paradox in biology. So it appears that productive science trundles along quite happily ignoring evolutionary ideas. But worse than that, The impact of evolutionary thinking has been to slow down scientific discovery. It's absorbed enormous resources and contributed virtually nothing in terms of useful scientific output. Not only is evolution bad for theology, it's bad for science as well. Now, Linda would say to me, and did in fact say to me, that if I'm going to make strong statements like that, i better be able to back them up. So I'm going to give you some examples of where evolutionary ideas have hindered scientific progress. First, let's have a look at vestigial organs. What are vestigial organs? Dr. Gary Parker explains. The evolutionist believes that these structures are there only as useless leftovers or vestiges of our evolutionary ancestry, remainders of the time when our ancestors were only fish and reptiles. He goes on to say, actually... The evolutionary idea of vestigial organs slowed down scientific research for many years. If you believe something is a useless, non-functional leftover of evolution, then you don't bother to find out what it does. Fortunately, other scientists didn't take that view. They felt instead that such structures probably had a function important for human development. Sure enough, studies have shown that at least 178 of 180 organs once listed as evolutionary vestiges have quite important functions in human beings. A few examples of supposedly vestigial organs in humans that turned out to carry out useful functions. First up, the appendix. A 1995 medical textbook tells us that the mucosa and submucosa of the appendix are dominated by lymphoid nodules and its primary function is as an organ of the lymphatic system. So, even though we can cope without it, it does have an important function. Yeah. And researchers have recently identified another job that the appendix has, which is acting as a good safe house for bacteria. Next, the so called tailbone or coccyx. This functions nothing like a tail in reality. Quoting Dr. Gary Parker again, in one sense, the coccyx is one of the most important bones in the whole body. It's an important point of muscle attachment required for our distinctive upright human posture and also for defecation. There's an interesting fact of the day that I bet you didn't expect to learn at church today. And if you don't know what defecation is, ask your mother later. (coughs) Wisdom teeth is another example. Common thinking now is that we've been far too ready to remove wisdom teeth for questionable reasons. Because we believe they were a redundant evolutionary leftover. And finally, tonsils. Robert Franks says tonsils are glands in the throat which function as part of the lymphatic system. They are part of the defence mechanism of the body to resist bacteria and other organisms. So, even though the idea of vestigial organs has been thoroughly discredited, these examples continue to be included in textbooks as evidence for evolution. But can you see how the idea of vestigial organs has been a hindrance to discovering how the human body works? Now, in case you think I'm being too tough on evolutionists here, I'm going to concede some ground. Remember how I said that 178 out of 180 organs once thought to be evolutionary vestiges have now been found to carry out important functions? The remaining two, that we've found no useful function for are the areas of the male brain dedicated for asking for directions when lost <laughs> and using the instructions when assembling kitset furniture. <laughs> Another similar evolutionary blunder which hindered scientific progress was the idea of junk DNA. What's junk DNA, you ask? Again, it's an idea that's been promoted as evidence for evolution. This gets a, a little bit complex, but I've tried to simplify it as much as I can. Before we look at DNA, though, a bit of a refresher on what DNA is and what it does for those of you who fell asleep in biology, or like me, never studied biology. DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, it's off the charts incredible. It just it blows my mind. It's the most advanced information storage, retrieval, and transmission system known anywhere. Far beyond anything that humans have invented. You probably think that a terabyte hard drive holds quite a bit of data. Think again. DNA the size of a pinhead could hold a 1,000 times more information. Not only that, but it holds software. Yeah, software. Again, more complex than anything written by humans. My guess would be iOS 3 and one Bit of geek humour there. Too subtle, maybe? <laughs> I thought I might crash and burn on that one. DNA is constructed like a spiral staircase. The, the rungs are like letters, three billion of them. In human DNA, they, they, they're like the, the letters um, spell words with meanings. How to grow everything in your body, as well as how, how it all functions. What are genes? Genes are sections of DNA, and some genes act as instructions for making proteins. What are proteins? Our bodies are made of proteins, and they're constructed by linking amino acids and chains. Placing amino acids in different positions along the chain makes different proteins doing different jobs. There are hundreds of thousands of different proteins. Got all that? Relax, there won't be a test today. So back to junk DNA. Dr Don Batten tells us, a long time before scientists decoded the human DNA, evolutionists decided that over 95% of the DNA must be useless. Junk DNA. Evolution demanded it. There was too much variation, too much DNA to mutate, and too few generations in which to get it all done. They suggested that the junk DNA was just padding between the important parts. When we finally decoded the human DNA and found that only 2% of the DNA coded for making proteins, it looked like the junk DNA idea was correct. No one knew what the other 98% did, so it was assumed that it did nothing. Junk DNA was then used as evidence for evolution. But just like the vestigial organs argument, the junk DNA idea has been unravelling as we learn more. A number of studies have now confirmed that this junk DNA is in fact useful. Some of it is involved in the, the complex sequence of events during embryo development. Some of it located before the genes that make proteins enable the genes to be read differently and therefore produce different proteins. Some enable the genes to be read in the opposite direction, again, producing different proteins. Some of it located after the genes control the activity of the genes, including how much of the protein the cell produces. A leading figure in genetics, Dr. John, sorry, Professor John Mattock, said, The failure to recognise the implications of the non-coding DNA will go down as the biggest mistake in the history of molecular biology. So clearly, the idea of junk DNA is junk science. Can you see how these false ideas, inspired by evolutionary thinking, lead scientists down rabbit holes instead of contributing to useful research? There are many more examples. As we, as we go through this morning, I'm just going to highlight various resources that relate to specifically to the topics I'm covering, and they'll be available here today for sale in the cafeteria afterwards. You'll probably remember very little uh, of what I say, but if you take away a book or a DVD and, and process that at your leisure, you're much more likely to remember it. And there's quite a bit of um, slightly damaged uh, stock available at half price today, so that's another bonus for you. So related to what we've just been talking about, there is a book, Evolutions, Blunders, Frauds and Forgeries, and a DVD, How Evolution Hurts Science. That one, the DVD, I don't actually have here, but can get it for you if you're wanting it. So scientifically speaking, good fruit resulting from evolutionary thinking is almost non-existent. Morally speaking, it's been a disaster. There's another whole talk, or another series of talks probably, on the horrific fruit of evolutionary thinking that ranges from abortion and euthanasia right through to genocide, the likes of Hitler's Holocaust, which was clearly inspired by evolutionary thinking. I don't have time this morning to show the evolutionary link to abortion and euthanasia, but there's a great little booklet covering this called Is Human Life Special? I will give one quote regarding Hitler's Holocaust. Sir Arthur Keith, was a British anthropologist, an atheistic evolutionist, and an anti-Nazi, and he drew this conclusion about Hitler. The German Fuhrer, as I have consistently maintained, is an evolutionist. He has consciously sought to make the practice of Germany conform to the theory of evolution. Now, social statistics from Australia show a relationship between the decline decline of church involvement by children and increased social problems, property crime, divorce, rape, youth suicide. Church influence in schools took a dive after the introduction of evolution into schools in the 1950s and 60s. In other so-called Christian countries, you'll find similar trends. But for now, I want to focus on just, just one area where evolutionary thinking has produced enormous pain and conflict, and that's racism. So... Am I suggesting that evolutionary thinking is the original direct cause of racism? No, I'm not. Neither racism nor even the idea of evolution actually originated with Darwin, but they're both manifestations of basing our thinking on a non-biblical foundation. However, Darwin's writings greatly fueled racism, providing a so-called scientific justification for it. His famous book, On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, has a subtitle, or The Preservation of Favoured Races and the Struggle for Life. As long as there are fallen people on this planet, there will be racism. We have a natural, or, or more correctly, an unnatural tendency to mistrust what we don't know or don't understand. And where ignorance reigns, it's just so easy to take on an air of superiority at the expense of other people groups. But in modern times, one of the biggest justifications for racial discrimination was the idea that different people groups have evolved separately. In this view, some groups will be at different stages of evolution, with some more backward than others. The logical conclusion is that some groups are not as fully human as others. Unsurprisingly, those writing the rule book in this regard placed themselves in the more evolved category, while many dark-skinned people groups were considered to be less evolved and therefore closer to animals. And this is demonstrated by a 1900 article, in Encyclopedia Britannica, which under the heading "Negro," stated, "The nearly unanimous consent of anthropologists is that Negroes occupy the lowest position on the evolutionary scale." Stephen J. Gould was a leading evolutionist, a Marxist, a staunch anti-racist, yet he admitted, biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1850, but they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolutionary theory. The litany is familiar. Cold, dispassionate, objective modern science shows that races can be ranked on a scale of superiority. And if this offends Christian morality or a sentimental belief in human unity, so be it. Science must be free to proclaim unpleasant truths. We now know that science does not in fact support this so-called truth. Any manifestation of racism is unpleasant, demeaning and wrong. But the extremes of racism have been absolutely horrific. This has included the slavery of millions of people in Australia, Aboriginals being killed in the name of scientific experimentation and also hunted and killed for sport. I've practiced this talk dozens of times and that still gets me. It's almost unbelievable. Now, of course, these attitudes are completely unbiblical. Unbiblical. According to the Bible, we are all descendants of the first two people who lived, Adam and Eve, whom God created and placed in the Garden of Eden. So all people were created as humans by God. Genesis 2, 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. We are, in fact, one human race and one human family. Acts 17, 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Yeah. All humans came from Adam. Yeah. So it's impossible that any people groups are closer to animals than others. Galatians three twenty There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Yeah. So what about the apparent differences between people groups. Well science is now, again, finally catching up with God's word. The study of genetics now confirms what the Bible has always said, that we are all related very closely. Take a look around the room, that idea may scare you. Dr. Carl Velan says, but what group differences exist are trivial, as modern discoveries in human biology and genetics now confirm. Things such as skin, hair, or eye color involve no structures or functions unique to any group, just various amounts of the same stuff. And if you compare the DNA of any two people in the world, the difference will typically be just 0.2%. Wow. Have a look at this picture. How closely do you think these two girls are related? The answer is very. They're twins. Sisters Lucy and Maria Alma from the UK are stunning evidence that we are all closely related. Maria is black, Lucy is white, yet they are twins born to their part Jamaican mother and white father. Now this matches what we would expect from biblical history. Now if you prefer a bit more cute factor with your science, check out another pair of twins also from the U.K. A question for you. How many skin colours are there in humans? Anyone who's done my course knows the answer to this. (laughs) Correct. There is one skin colour in humans. Dr. Veland tells us, all people have the same sunscreen skin pigment, melanin. Those with more melanin, generally labelled black, are really more dark brown. Those with less, called white, are really light brown, often pinkish because of insufficient melanin to screen the redness of their small blood vessels, and there are many shades in between. The Bible also gives us a clear explanation for how the different people groups originated and dispersed across the planet so quickly. After Noah's flood where the world's population was reduced down to a very small group of eight individuals, all humans spoke the same language. God commanded them to spread out and repopulate the earth, which they refused to do. As they began to construct the Tower of Babel, God supernaturally introduced new languages which caused forced dispersal. They experienced confusion and probably hostility as they found that they were unable to understand each other. The result was the people rapidly fulfilling God's earlier command to spread out and repopulate the whole earth. The minor genetic differences called racial were the result of the genetic isolation of these people groups for centuries. So again, we see that evolutionary thinking leads us in a tragic direction. Thinking biblically not only explains why racism is wrong, It also shows us the so-called racial differences are in fact tiny, and we are indeed one global human family. If this topic interests you, I'd recommend the children's book One Big Family, and I highly recommend the book One Human Family, which is described as a fascinating and deeply informative read that combines sensitivity with a rejection of political correctness This blow-by-blow tour of race-related issues across the world revealing a wealth of research and life experience is unlike any other creation book you've ever read. For many, it will make the lights go on, not just about race, but about the whole biblical big picture of human history. So that's the bad news. The issues I've talked about so far demonstrate the negative impact of evolutionary thinking. Now I want to take a more positive tack and show how thinking biblically as well as scientifically leads us towards the truth. So what about dinosaurs? (laughs) Some Christians are threatened by this question as if it poses a challenge to the Bible. There's no need to be threatened. Dinosaurs are a powerful witnessing tool supporting the Bible. What do we know for certain about dinosaurs? Well, we know that they existed. We've found their remains. Beyond that, there are very, two very different versions of events. The evolutionary story is that they evolved gradually over millions of years and they all became extinct about 65 million years ago. The biblical version is that they were created alongside mankind roughly 6,000 years ago on days five or six, depending on whether they were aquatic or land based. So humans and dinosaurs, according to the Bible, existed together. It's an amazing thought. All air-breathing vertebrate land mammals, including dinosaurs, perished in the global flood around 4,500 years ago, except for those preserved aboard Noah's Ark. Are dinosaurs described in the Bible? The word dinosaur does not appear in the Bible. It's a relatively modern word coined by Sir Richard Owen in 1841. He derived it from the Greek words terrible lizard after seeing fossil bones of Iguanodon and Megalosaurus. So it's understandable that dinosaur doesn't appear in English translations of the Bible. The tradition of English translation was set in the 1500s and 1600s with the Geneva Bible and the King James Version. But can we find anything in the Bible that may refer to dinosaurs? You reckon? reckon. (laughs) Have a look at Job 40, 15 to 19. Look at behemoth, which I made along with you, and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength it has in its loins, what power in the muscles of its belly. Its tail sways like a cedar. The sinews of its thighs are close-knit. Its bones are tubes of bronze, its limbs like rods of iron. It ranks first among the works of God, yet its maker can approach it with his sword. What living animal could this description fit? Behemoth is sometimes translated as elephant or hippo. that doesn't fit. An elephant or hippo does not have a tail like a cedar. It's a big tree. It's actually a pretty good description of a brachiosaurus. So arguably dinosaurs are mentioned in the Bible just under another name. So we have our two opposing histories. Which version is right? Well, the scientific approach is to take an idea call it a hypothesis, because that sounds a lot more impressive, and then use the idea to predict what evidence we would expect to find if it were true. So in this case, our biblical hypothesis is that the vast majority of dinosaurs were wiped out in a global flood, that they coexisted with humans, and that the flood survivors were alive within the last four and a half thousand years. If our hypothesis is true, then we would expect to find supporting evidence. So is there any supporting evidence, you ask? Yes, there's lots. First up, regarding their almost complete destruction in Noah's flood, many dinosaur fossils show signs of rapid burial in flood-like conditions. We find them buried in sedimentary rock, which is rock formed in bodies of water. There's lots of evidence that they were buried very rapidly, The speed of burial is shown by dinosaurs fossilised in the process of giving birth or eating. The arched back posture we see in many fossils we now know is evidence of death by drowning. We find dinosaur tracks all over the world, but they're almost always in straight lines, which indicates that the animals were panicking. Animal tracks tend to meander when they're relaxed. We also find evidence of swim tracks left by dinosaurs, Dr. Taz Walker uh, describes swim tracks. Swim tracks are found all over the world, including dinosaur tracks in nor- northern Spain, which consist of claw marks made in the sand surface as the animals on tiptoes trying to move through deep, flowing water. OK, secondly, regarding the coexistence of people and dinosaurs... I'm sure I'm messing with some people's heads here. <laughs> we would expect to find evidence of dinosaurs in recorded human history. So do we. Well we don't. We don't find historical references to dinosaurs and we wouldn't expect to because as I said before dinosaur is a modern word. But there are many historical references to dragons. These descriptions are remarkably consistent and the range of evidence is huge. We find historical references to dragons from Europe across Asia into China, and these descriptions match modern reconstructions of dinosaurs from fossil evidence. We find a wide range of visual images, sculptures, paintings, tapestries, vases, ornaments, etc., where people have depicted dinosaurs that they must have seen firsthand because of the incredible detail in the representations. Even a secular book called Dragons states that the evidence for dragons is not confined to works of natural history and literature, but appears in everyday chronicles of events, and such eyewitness accounts are not derived from hearsay or anonymous rumour. They were set down by people of some standing, by kings and knights, monks and archbishops, scholars and saints. For example, from a chronicle of 1405 in England, close to the town of Burroughs near Sudbury, there has lately appeared to the great hurt of the countryside a dragon, vast in body with a crested head, teeth like a saw and a tail extending to an enormous length. Having slaughtered the shepherd of a flock, it devoured many sheep. Features like a crested head and tail extending to an enormous length are consistent with this dragon being a dinosaur-like creature. An Irish writer around AD 900 recorded an encounter with a large animal with thick legs and strong claws and described it as having iron nails in its tail. Could that have been a Stegosaurus? Carlisle Cathedral in Britain has a tomb to Bishop Bell, and around the outside of the tomb are brass engravings dating from the 1400s that depict sauropod dinosaurs along with various other familiar animals. One of the dinosaurs appears to be a Shunosaurus, a little-known dinosaur with cleft and spikes in its tail. These engravings were made over three centuries before fossil bones of these creatures were dug up described and named. Temples of Angor in Cambodia have 800-year-old glyphs that depict what appear to be a Stegosaurus. The Chinese word for dinosaur, konglong, literally means fearsome dragon, and of the 12 symbols used in the Chinese lunar calendar, 11 are real animals seen today, suggesting that the 12th, the dragon, could also be real. Thirdly regarding dinosaurs existing relatively recently. So remember the evolutionary story is that dinosaurs died out 65 million years ago. Well, a discovery by paleontologist Dr. Mary Schweitzer in 1993 threw huge doubt into this idea and she absolutely stunned the scientific community. It turns out many dinosaur fossils are not completely mineralized. And Dr. Schweitzer identified soft, fresh-looking tissue inside a T-Rex femur. She then identified dinosaur blood vessels, still flexible and elastic after 68 million years, and apparently intact cells. Now understand, this is not what she expected. This does not fit her evolutionary worldview. And there's also no way this cellular tissue could last for 65 million years. Dr Schweitzer said, it was totally shocking. I didn't believe it until we'd done it 17 times. (laughs) Many in the scientific community also struggled to accept the findings. She had difficulty getting her work published because it was such a challenge to the idea of dinosaur fossils being millions of years old. Dr Schweitzer says, I had one reviewer tell me that he didn't care what the data said. He knew that what I was finding wasn't possible. I wrote back and said, well, what data would convince you? He said, none. There have been many attempts to explain away this discovery, but Schweitzer's findings have since been repeated and confirmed multiple times. A summary of the findings. In 1993, dinosaur blood cells give Mary Schweitzer goosebumps. In 1997, hemoglobin as well as red blood cells in a T-Rex bone. In 2003, evidence of the protein osteocalcin In 2005, flexible ligaments and blood vessels. In 2007, collagen in a T-Rex bone. In 2009, the fragile proteins elastin and laminin and further confirmation of collagen in a duck-billed dinosaur. In 2012, bone cells osteocytes. The proteins actin and tubulin and DNA were reported. Now the measured rates of decomposition of these proteins and especially DNA, which is extremely fragile, show that they could not have lasted for the presumed 65 million years since dinosaur extinction. More recently in 2012 was the revelation that all tested dinosaur fossils contain carbon-14. Again, this is amazing. This had the evolution community in a spin, so much so that they even censored the findings of a major international conference. Out of the many types of radiometric dating, carbon-14 is used to date organic matter, and it has a very short half-life of 5,730 years. It's been estimated there should be no detectable carbon-14 in anything much older than 60,000 years at a maximum. This is very powerful evidence against the millions of years dogma about dinosaurs. Regarding Dr Schweitzer's discoveries, Dr Carl Velan wrote... I invite the reader to step back and contemplate the obvious. This discovery gives immensely powerful support to the proposition that dinosaur fossils are not millions of years old at all, but were mostly fossilised under catastrophic conditions a few thousand years ago at most. So our biblical hypothesis that the vast majority of dinosaurs were wiped out in a global flood, that they coexisted with humans, and that the flood survivors were alive within the last four and a half thousand years is thoroughly supported by the evidence that we find today. So can you see how thinking biblically led us in the right direction, was confirmed by the evidence? A few resources relevant to this topic are the DVD, What About Dinosaurs? A book, Dinosaur Challenges and Mysteries. It's a children's book, Exploring Dinosaurs with Mr. Hibb. Another book, Guide to Dinosaurs, And if money is tight, there is a free tract. Dinosaurs, did they die out 65 million years ago? Another question for you. How did Cain get a wife when he wasn't able? That's not mine. Can't take credit for that one. This is often asked as a genuine question or as a challenge to the Bible. So Cain and Abel were the sons of Adam and Eve who were the first human couple and the Bible tells us that Cain killed Abel and later on that Cain has a wife. So what's the problem? Well, how could Cain get married when there was initially only one family and the Bible prohibits marriage between close relatives? Again, let's approach this thinking biblically. What do we know? We know that Adam and Eve were the only two people created by God at the beginning. They had three sons who are named in the Bible, Cain, Abel, and Seth. Genesis 5.4 tells us that Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. And the Bible then says Cain killed Abel, and a bit later on it mentions Cain's wife. So Cain's wife must have been a very close relative, his sister, or possibly his niece. But the Bible prohibits marriage between close relatives, doesn't it? Why is that? I'm going to simplify this slightly, but the principle remains true. First up, you're all mutants. And if you have blue eyes, one of your mutations is physically visible. We all carry genetic mutations and pass them on to our children. Sorry, Stephen, for the shaky hands and the poor circulation. It's the, <laughs> it's the price you pay for the bodybuilder physique. These mutations are potentially damaging and they can cause diseases and cancer. But God has placed some incredible safeguards into our reproductive system. At conception, you receive two sets of genetic information one from your mother and one from your father. And if you receive a mutated gene from one parent and the same gene is undamaged from the other parent, then the undamaged gene will be selected and no genetic problems will result. How amazing is your body! However, the closer our parents are related, the greater chance that you could receive the same mutated gene from both parents. When this happens, there is no good or unmutated gene to select, only the damaged ones. And in this case, genetic problems may well result. That's why the Bible prohibits marriage between close relatives. It's a biological issue. It's not a moral one. The next piece in the puzzle is understanding that as the first humans created by God in a very good paradise, Adam and Eve would have been genetically pure with no genetic defects. Then came the fall caused by Adam and Eve's rebellion and the introduction of death, disease, suffering and logically genetic mutations. Initially only a few, but as subsequent generations were born, the number of mutations began to increase and it's still doing that today. It's a well-known scientific phenomena known as genetic entropy. So today there are around 100 additional new mutations added per person, every generation, and that number is just increasing. But in the early generations, there was virtually no risk arising from close into marriage because the number of mutations was so small. So biologically, there was no problem with Cain marrying his sister. So the last piece in the puzzle... God does clearly forbid marriage between close relatives. Leviticus 18:9. Do not have sexual relations with your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether she was born in the same home or elsewhere. Deuteronomy 27:22. Cursed is anyone who sleeps with his sister, the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother. Question is, when did God prohibit marriage between close relatives? And the answer is not until the time of Moses, about 1500 BC so God introduced the prohibition only when biologically mutations were going to become a serious problem isn't he clever yeah. before that there was no issue with marrying a close relative so once again thinking biblically shows us that the supposed challenge is no challenge at all yeah. a couple of resources on this one, a children's book Adam and Family and the DVD Biblical Biology 101 One final quick gem that isn't a proof of the Bible, but I love it. Genesis 2.21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. So Adam was missing a rib. Maybe not. Surgeons today know that if you remove a human rib but leave behind the periosteum, which is the membrane covering the bone, the rib will grow back. The same rib can be reharvested and used elsewhere to repair the body multiple times. God has placed a bone factory in your chest. How cool is that? The body he's given you is just incredible. There's a little booklet relating to this one called Adam's Rib Creation and the human body. Katie, so to close, as always my hope is that you've been inspired to trust God's word, even when it clashes with popular thinking. Scientific thought is constantly changing. Someone has said that if we wed ourselves to the latest scientific idea today, we risk being divorced tomorrow. But God's word doesn't change and scientific discovery is gradually catching up with it. We can confidently rely on God's word as our ultimate foundation. I want to restate that I'm not opposed to science, far from it, but it's the science that has chosen to ignore the history of the world described in the Bible that has proved to be fruitless at best and destructive at worst. Evolution is not just an intellectual idea that's incorrect. Ideas have consequences and bad ideas produce bad fruit. Evolutionary thinking has been damaging to science, it's been morally corrosive, and it's been incredibly harmful to people. We need to be equipped to expose it for what it is, an idea not supported by scientific discovery but birthed out of humanistic materialism. It's an alternative option that people choose, not because of the supporting evidence, but because it allows them to reject the Bible. When we learn to apply a biblical worldview to the evidence we see around us, we're far more likely to interpret it correctly. History gives us many examples where secular science claimed to have proved the Bible wrong, only to find out that as we learn more, the Bible was right all along. To me, it's obvious where we should put our trust. So how do we counter rotten fruit? With bread from heaven... Matthew 4.4, 4. Jesus said, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We need to fill our minds with God's word. Now here's the challenge. It's not just for our benefit. We need to upskill ourselves with supporting arguments so that we can show others that God's word gives by far the best explanation for the world we see around us. In fact, we're commanded to do this. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. It isn't just about us. The eternal destiny of others is at stake here. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks us to give the reason for the hope that we have. And we need to be prepared to lead other people towards the truth. For many people, evolution is the greatest stumbling block on their journey toward Jesus. The great news is it's so easy to get equipped to defend the Bible and to expose evolution as a hollow philosophy. These days we're drowning in good evidence and information that supports the Bible and debunks evolution. The best source that I'm aware of, apart from the Bible itself, is creation.com, where you'll find over 10,000 articles and around 700 video clips, all proclaiming the truth of God's word. I want to give the last word to Jesus and ask you... Will you become someone who lives daily on a diet of God's word? Will you become someone with power to demolish strongholds, arguments, and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God? Will you always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have? My prayer is that you will. Thank you for listening.